Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of The Writer's Bookshelf, brought to you by myself, David Driver, and the Gingerlicious Company. And it's not just any episode, is it? No, it's a massive, massive warm welcome to the new year. We are in 2024, so I'm going to wish every one of you a happy new year. I hope you're all nicely settled in. Have you had... Have you had a fantastic Christmas? When you are listening to this, it's the new year. I believe it could be the 2nd of January. Yes, are you all Christmas caked out? Are you all, have you had too much turkey? Too much, <coughs> excuse me, that cough is here again. Why won't that blasted cough go away? Um. Okay, so have you had enough turkey? Have you had enough Christmas cake? Have you joined the gym? It just seems so rather weird. And I know I keep saying it because it's the first time. It's not obviously my um, first time broadcasting. I have been broadcasting for many years now. Um, it seems a little bit strange to be coming into the new year or broadcasting in the new year and I'm not sort of playing any songs and I normally wel- welcome you back to a... Um, to the radio station and all things all things radio but that's not the case now it's on a podcast which i am thoroughly thoroughly um enjoying it's brilliant it's brilliant stuff indeed so welcome to the new year in in the uh, in the podcast and it's coming up do you know i've just got a, a notification yesterday february um, it took a little bit of getting going i i sort of thought to myself in february or last year, 2023, about the uh, sort of getting a podcast together. And they're very efficient, because I think it's something like 42 days now. It's round about the 11th of uh, February, or the 12th of February, when uh, the renewal, the, the license, goodness me, you have to pay for a license every year. God damn it. Um, I have to pay for the license again, which I'm going to do. And it's been well worth it. It's brilliant stuff indeed. But time does fly by, so that will be nearly... Well, it's it's not so far off, is it, for uh, a, a um, 12 months. And then it all sort of happened by the time I'd got things sorted out. It started in July, so that will be the, the anniversary. Um, was it the July the 18th? I should have the information in front of me. So we're all, we're all rocking and rolling. I do hope you've all had such a wonderful break, and many of you... We'll be going back to work today on uh, January the um, January the uh, the second, and uh, or, or certainly sometime this week, maybe the Wednesday or the following week, and all that sort of thing. And we'll get back to doing things. I've just been down in the studio. In fact, I'm here now, down in the studio, making all these new sort of New Year's resolutions and laughing. I've managed to get through many of my uh, creative ideas. Only put about maybe at least six or seven up there, and then add another six or seven, and and have two sort of whiteboards that I write on, and um, I sort of put it down as what I want to do, and sort of I've cleaned it all off to have a, a new fresh start. So I've got some good things, um, some good ideas, hopefully for all you lovely people this year, twenty twenty four. And just on a sideline, yes, we are, uh, or you know, the team, the team and myself are bringing putting together two new um two new additions two new additions to the podcast i have advertised it's the one-off play 
the Purple Orchid of uh, Ulysses Goyle. So that's going to start recording in January because uh, obviously myself and others finished the pantomime in Silsden and then other people involved in pantomime and on stage elsewhere. So we're going to start um, recordings and then the brilliant John Spence will put the magic, put the icing on the cake. So just watch this space for the one-off um, radio play, radio drama, um, the Purple Orchid of Ulysses Goyle. That'll be good stuff. I think that'll be around about an hour. And also I've started, I have penned, and I think we might have just got the opening to Jonathan Quigley, QC, Wicked Female Killers, which will be a series of, uh, shall we just say, sort of gruesome things going on by the the fairer sex, yes, the Wicked Female Killers, as the title suggests. I've got a nice little bit of music, some fantastic artwork um, by a couple of my brilliant friends, and we've got the opening. Hopefully we've got the whole, the opening now. And I've penned three. There are three episodes, if you like, um, of fictitious characters. Don't get too excited. It's it's all fictitious, but see what you uh, see what you think. And I'm on with the fourth one. So there's many, many things. But on, on tonight's episode, on today's episode, depending when you are listening. I can't... I always like get into the habit. I need, I need to stop saying... On tonight's episode and I think most people do listen sort of early evening late evening and that's just because of the radio so the the um, the introductions to the new year are over and I'm gonna now I am gonna welcome anyone who is um, I'm going to welcome anyone who is um, who is part of family and friends of Francis Mary Demain so thank you for lending me well my good friend Ross working over at Craven Nursing Home in uh, in Skipton and that's in the UK for all you people listening in America Virginia and Maryland another hello to you lovely people my good friend is a nurse and she does a fantastic job and she's been kindly kindly being given well not given it's going back kindly we've kindly lent me um some books by or, or writings by the absolutely gorgeous Francis Mary Demain and all I'm going to do is I'm just going to straight in there I think it might it might go over I might do this over two episodes let's see I've I've got two files I'm just going to randomly it's on the front it says memoirs by Francis M Demain I've, I've glanced through them but I just feel as if I want to sort of give you listeners my um, my, my reaction as well. So little boxes, some gorgeous. He actually says little boxes. Now I'm going into there's a, there's a um, a poem or a little a little piece of work called um, little boxes. But before that, it's it just, they're just I want to use the word random. The random writings so it might be a little bit of poetry, could be a short story, could be a memory. It could be many, many things, and let's just go through them. I know I must, I must apologise. Why is this plumbing? This cold just will not go away, and it's been with me for a um, well for a week or so now. I thought I'd got rid of it. And it's come back anyway. Aura. People with a purple aura are highly psychic, attuned to the emotions and moods of others. 
and very sensitive. People with a predominant of purple are seen as secretive and mysterious. They possess a philosophical, intuitive and inquiring mind. They love to learn and never stop exploring and inquiring into new subjects and areas which interest them. Because of this, they tend to be extremely interesting and knowledgeable people. They do not have a wide circle of many friends, but the friends they have do the friends they do have are held close and are respected and loved. People with a purple aura tend to be unlucky in love, but once they have found their perfect love match, they are loyal and loving forever. Beautiful words indeed, so if you have or think you have a purple aura, a little bit of an insight for you. Okay, this one's called Little Boxes, Little Boxes. Life is like a collection of boxes, each containing a surprise. And each, as each box closes and is consigned to a memory bank, another one opens onto the next phase. It is useless to look ahead and try to second guess what the new box will hold. As the chances are, you could never have imagined what would be in them. The secret for a happy life is to make the most of the box you are in. Accept the new box when it comes and enjoy the surprises that will be revealed. Accepting them as they come, when you put away a box, lock it in. Lock in it all, the I wish I had, what if, if only thoughts. They are gone and cannot be altered, so do not worry about them. The new box is there for you to practice what you have learnt from the previous boxes and try to do better. Be happy in the box you are in. So there you have it from Francis Domain. It's be happy in your boxes. It's the um, it's the it's the only it's the only way, the only way to be. Let's have a look here. Okay, memories. Let's go on to memories. All random things. Memories. I'm just adjusting. If you can hear me rattling, I'm sort of stood over now. No, I'm sat down actually. Not I'm not stood over. And it's quite a heavy file. I'm turning it over. I just want you, want suddenly you to hear a clank, and then uh, and then you think, oh my goodness, what's uh, what's sort of happening here? So we'll uh, we'll just see. We'll see what uh, we'll see what's happening. Memories. Memories are like a big box of licorice, all sorts. They come in various sizes and shapes. Some large, some small. Some are plain and uninteresting, whilst others are covered in hundreds and thousands of little attendant joys, cheerfully coloured and ebony black, sweetness and bitterness together aligned. Allied, I apologise. Certain memories can seem lost until a casual conversation will bring them to the fore and we can enjoy again the visions they create. 
the bright colours of happy memories are more than often brought to mind, but there are times when dipping into the box your hand will fall upon a dark-sided memory which you have previously pushed away into the vibrant disorder. Sometimes it is hard to bury these recollections again and we are overcome by how many dark ones are contained therein. Negative memories prompt us to think of the path we should have taken. Opportunities we did not grasp. The open door we, need, we did not step through and are usually accompanied by the most useless phrase in the English language. If only. These intruders, once looked at and rejected, need to be parceled up and returned into the deepest part of the box to perish there by our neglect. Now is the time to seek out a dazzling remembrance and dispel the gloom and the shadows. Yesterday's pleasures in full technicolour, well-loved faces, happy events, wonderful scenes, all paraded for our delight. Those well-remembered hills. It is good to know that all our memories are the building blocks of our character and personality. Without these experiences that we recall, good or bad, we would not be the people we are. So let us cherish them all. I have to say, it's absolutely brilliant. It's fantastic stuff. And it's going out now right at the beginning of January. So it's... Um, it should, it should be, okay. Now, I've come across, maybe I should have done this one first. Biography, main details, goodness. This is, well, we, we know a little bit more about Francis now. So let's see, let's see. Um, <clears throat> yeah, let's see. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a little bit, a little bit of the biography of, uh, of uh, Francis, okay. And obviously, this is these are her, these are her words. I was born on the twenty sixth of March, nineteen twenty seven, at twelve Teesdale Street, Thornaby on Tees, Stockton on Tees, County Durham. As far as education, police, etc., were concerned, Thornaby came under the auspicious. It came under the 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 North Riding of Yorkshire. My parents were you, Gabrielle Don Donnelly, and Phyllis Marie Nee Logan. My sister Agnes was born on the 3rd of January 1924 at the home of my grandmother, Logan, at Norton on Tees. We were both baptised at St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church in Thornaby and attended St. Patrick's Infant School there. Age 11, I passed the 11 plus examination and another to be educated at St. Mary's Convent, Newlands Abingdon Road, Middlesbrough, where Agnes was already in the upper fifth. A year later, on the 3rd of September, 1939, war with Germany was declared. 
The convent was closed down and we were evacuated. As a school, together with teachers and nuns, to Moulton, where, in the first instant, we shared accommodation with Moulton Grammar School. Eventually, the Pioneer Club Clubhouse was put up at our disposal. Ancient desks and chairs and other necessary furniture and items that we needed were dug out of the storage when we had our own temporary school. We were billeted with very kind and friendly householders. In my case, they were Mr and Mrs Island at Peasy Hills Road. Jean Alexander was billeted with me and we were well cared for as Missy Island and she asked us all to call her previously being a naddy we were in good hands Mr Island was Misty after three years we returned to the convent the playground was now equipped with air raid shelters which I cannot remember we ever had to use except for practicing in the event of an air raid so convent life returned to normal at 16, I left school and entered Pittman Secretarial School in Middlesbrough. After a year, I got a job as a wages clerk at the Malleable Steels Work in Stockton. It was my job to fill the wages sheets on a typewriter with a carriage around 25 inches long, which was able to accommodate the duplicated sheets of the wage slips. So that gives you a little bit of the biography of the one and only Francis Demain. Okay, um, as a child, what I'm going to do is, I'm, I'm not going to read every single thing out, simply because some, um, some of the passages or some of the pieces are um, sort of much longer than others. There's things on half a page, a third a page, and some of them are pages, I do mean excuse me, pages long, which is brilliant indeed. Um, so I'm just going to flick, when I say I'm going to flick through, I'm going to give you a, a an insight into the lady. Okay, this one goes by the title of As a Child. Okay. Um, it says, There is no blue plaque on the wall of the house where I was born. The rubble of the building only exists to act as a foundation for a bypass. My memories of that place keep it alive. <coughs> <coughs> I do apologise. My, yeah. I'm just going to take a drink. You can tell it's live, can't you? I'm just going to take a little drink, and I do apologise. And hopefully, when I get back to uh, my full fitness, I won't be coughing like I am. So if you... You can tell I'm in there. Goodness, I was going about this cough, don't I? As a child, let's start that one again. Apologies. Um, as a child. There is no blue plaque on the wall of the house where I was born. The rubble of the building only exists to act as a foundation for a bypass. My memories of that place keep it alive and part of a remembered happy childhood. It was a terraced house in a street that sloped up to the common at the top. Of the two up and down variety. I lived there with my father, mother and elder sister Agnes. There was no bathroom, but we had a tin bath 
which hung on a hook outside the kitchen door in the yard. There was a black iron fireplace in the living room, which had to be black-leaded every week, and a shiny steel fender, which my mother kept sparkling with the fine ash from the fire remains. One side of the fire was taken up with an oven, and the other side a container of water, which was heated by the fire. Bath night was a great occasion, with jugs and buckets of water to fill the bath in front of the roaring fire. Needless to say, we only, we only had one bath per week. Every day we had a thorough washdown, as my mother called it, living in an industrial area. One was very grubby by the end of the day. There was no hot water on tap in that house, apart from that by the fire, but we did have a cold tap in the kitchen. This was quite a refinement in those days, as most houses all had only a pump outside for their water. The front room, or the parlour, was kept for special occasions. It was always cold and smelt of soot. The house hair stuffed chair stung and prickled you, so it was impossible to keep still, which you were expected to do in those surroundings. Sitting there with ankles crossed and hands clasped on one's lap was a penance as demanded of the most sinful. Goodness me. And I'll just mention this around Christmas. It goes on to say, I'll just, I'll just sort of fit this a little bit in. It says, um, the room came to life at, alive, the room came to life at Christmas with a huge fire in the grate and candles on the mantelpiece. We repaired, we repaired to this room after our sumptuous Christmas dinner. Our homes were lit by gas in those days, which shed a dim light, so the candles gave the, gave the room a festive air. Goodness me. And yes, I could read that all day. So what we have to do is borrow these again and uh, see what see what we can do. Um, okay, I'm just looking down here. Okay, let's go, let's go down here. Trauma. Oh, goodness me. This one. Oh, let's read this one, Trauma, and it's based on Christmas. Okay. Please, oh, please, can I have a doll for Christmas? No, you can't. You will only destroy it. My mother needed the bread with an extra thump to emphasise her words. I climbed onto the chair next to the table where she worked and tried again. Oh, please, just this once, can I have a doll? I've told you before, no. And with that, she slapped a lump of dough onto the scales, then thrust it onto the well-greased tin. That was the end of that conversation. I knew that tone of voice. I was coming up to my sixth Christmas, but life seemed to be over. Yes, I'd been given dolls in the past. They were celluloid ones, which, if you pushed their cheeks with your finger, they would slowly develop a dimple. If you stuck a pin in the dimple, it would straighten out again. Oh, great fun. But this was um, destruction from my mother's point of view. One doll I had been given had eyes that opened and shut by the use of heavy weights. I discovered this by removing the head. This was destruction. The elastic band that joined the arms together would only twist round for so long before the band would break 
and the arms fall off. This was also destruction. To me, it was discovery. I was born with a need to know why. Now a pupil at the local infant school, I had performed in the school concert a great many... Uh, uh, sorry, um, a great honour. I was to sing, Golden Slumbers Kiss Your Eyes. But not having a doll of my own to hold in my arms as I lifted them up to the cardboard moon, I had to borrow one of my friends, Molly Jackson. It was a beautiful baby dolly with black curly hair, big blue eyes and, pe and a peaches and cream complexion. That is what I wanted for Christmas. I would love it. Take care of it and cherish it. I would not destroy it, I promise. Christmas morning came and my sister and I crept downstairs at 6am to see what was in our stockings. There, beside my pile, was a regulation long oblong parcel that could contain a doll in a box. I was too overcome to open it. I was too overcome to open it. It was a miracle. Could it perhaps be something else, that shape? At last, I plucked up courage to open the parcel, ready to be disappointed. But no, there was a baby doll. Oh, for once I was speechless. Then I reached for that beautiful image and clasped it to my heart. Happiness filled and welled over. I set off for the stairs. Oh, Daddy, 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 look what Father Christmas has brought me. Oh, Daddy, look. I got to the last step, but one stumbled and went down I went. I hit a rug on the polished hall floor and skidded off into the front door. The doll made the first contact and smashed to pieces. Battered and bruised as I was, I had no other thoughts than that I had once again unintentionally destroyed a doll. I was heartbroken. My parents comforted me and tried to convince me it was an accident. <clears throat> but they were not angry. But I would not be comforted. Needless to say, buying me a doll was an exercise not to be repeated, which was a great sorrow to me. Twenty years later, I arrived at my parents' home with my new baby. Here, at last, was my baby doll, more perfect than any doll could possibly be. She had the necessary black curls and blue eyes and an amazing complexion for a new baby. As I put this new little person on a pillow on the table to change her nappy, my mother stood anxiously by. I cannot think why. <coughs> what a beautiful story. Um, indeed, okay. Um, <laughs> I'll do a little bit of toddler, I'll do a little bit of toddler antics, okay. Um, and he goes on to say, I was... I was a trouble to my mother. I was a trouble to my mother from the very start. Um, my parents had married in their 35th year, having been courting for 13 years. So when Agnes arrived on the scene, she became 
to light, she became the light of their lives. Um, Auntie Frances, my father's sister, and Uncle John, who lived next door, had no family. So Agnes had a quartet of adoring adults all to herself. Four years later, I arrived to spoil it all. Agnes was one of those children who you could dress in white first thing in the morning and she would still be spotless at the end of the day. And there she would be with not a hair out of place on her on her ribboned curly head. Well, you know what's coming. And then there was me. Not a pretty sight, I suspect, as my mother told me in later years, that she would keep the hood up on the pram and the blankets arranged so that if anyone looked in, they would not be able to see me very well. Well, I could walk, sorry, when I could walk, and mother held us by the hand, if we met anyone she knew, she would put me behind her back and push Agnes forward. All this was, apparently, because I always scowled at everybody. The majority of photographs taken at this time all show me scowling at my camera. What no one understood was, I was trying to see what the cameraman was doing. Um, okay, it goes on to say, um, no, I'll keep going. My other fault was that unlike Agnes, I did not walk along quietly, but skipped and jumped. I was forever being told to walk like a lady, but as I had no knowledge of who or what a lady was, it all fell on deaf ears. Then there was a struggle of getting me dressed to go out. Here, my mother had a real dilemma. If she dressed me first, by the time she had got herself ready, I needed sorted out again. I acquired a nickname at the age of five, which stuck with me in certain quarters into adulthood. My mother's sisters, my mother's sister, husband and family of three small children, emigrated to America in 1912. Winnie, the eldest, was ten at the time. Thirty years later, she came over to England to stay with us for three months. I was five at the time. That was a wonderful time. I remember asking my father, where was America? Was it in England, Ireland, Scotland or Wales? That was the extent of my world. Dad produced an atlas and showed me all these other countries and sparked off an interest in maps that has never left me. At this time, Auntie Frances had a little black kitten with big blue eyes called Tiddles. One day, my mother got me ready to go out with them. I can remember a pale green coat, white beret, white socks and black paint and leather shoes. Whilst mother and Winnie were chatting away together, picking up gloves and handbags, I wondered outside. The coalman had made a delivery earlier and some coal had fallen out onto the path. So I decided to tidy it up. I was expecting to be called a good girl when I got in, but as I walked through the door, Winnie said, I wonder where Francis is. I'm here, I'm here, I cried. Oh, is that you? I thought it was Tiddles. And that name stuck. With my long dark hair and big blue eyes, and having just spent a happy time in the coal house, I can now I can see how they would have been mistaken. 
Brilliant, brilliant indeed. Okay, let's see what else we've got here. Um, a market day, just bear with me. Education, let's just see. I might go back to that one. Sing a song while you know. Okay, let's have a little bit of education. And then there's the next one called Into the Unknown. Um, let's have a look here. It goes on to say education. My sister, and, my sister and I had the advantage of being born to mature parents who understood the benefit of good education. My father came from a large family and in the a large family and in the twenties, in the aftermath of World War One, as soon as children were old enough to work, they were taken out of school. Further education was denied. And it and was denied them except at night classes. My father signed up for everything he could whilst working in the steelworks during the day. Consequently, when my sister and I were born, he set about educating us before we went to school. Books were always available at our home as my father devoured books. He would visit the second hand bookstall in the market and buy any educational book he could find for a few pence. He was determined that Agnes and I should receive the education he had been denied. From being very small, he would sit with us. With us. Sorry. Um, from being very small, he would sit with us with him. He would sit us with him whilst he read a story to us, pointing to every word as he was reading. We picked up our alphabet and pronunciation of the little words. Later, he acquired a spelling book, and each night he would teach us two new words, which we had to learn and spell for him the next day. It's all good stuff. Goodness, where has education gone now? Okay, let's just move on. I'm trying to get through the whole book um, into the unknown. <clears throat> September the 7th, 1939. Um, it says there was an air of expectancy, excitement. This was the first day of a new era in my life. Today was evacuation day. I had not heard that word before and we were called to school with our parents to be told about the contingency plan that was, that was about to be put into action if and when war would be declared. What exactly did it mean? I resorted to the dictionary, departure. In this case, from a place of danger, our school was situated in the very high-risk industrial area of Middlesbrough, being surrounded by chemical works and iron foundries with an aerodrome just half a mile up the road. I had begun my secondary education at St Mary's Convent Grammar School, known as Newlands, just one year previously, and now, at 12 years old, I was departing with my school fellows to another part of the country where we would be safe. <coughs> some fantastic, some fantastic uh, stories. Um, and I'm just going to skip forward to um, winter 1941. Um, so let's, it's, yeah, I'll just skip through this. Winter 1941. Okay. Mother Monica, our head, had announced that there would be no home visits for Christmas. Not be at home for Christmas? Well, that was unthinkable. 
but by the third Christmas of the war. We were used to such pronouncements. We were told that the bombing was heavy and it was not wise to have so many children uh, travelling. Of course, our first, our first thoughts were, what about our Christmas presents? Mother Monica assured us that arrangements had been made with one of the parents who owned a van. Our parents were to meet at the convent, bringing the gifts for us with them. Mr Alexander would bring them to Moulton and pick up the gifts we had for home, which would be given to our parents. As we were only given sixpence a week pocket money, that did not go far in buying presents. As we were only... Sorry, um, needless to say, I resorted to embroidering a plain handkerchief for my mother, spills for father to light his pipe, and a small bottle of evening in Paris perfume from Woolless for my older sister. We wondered what arrangements would be made for us. However, we need not have worried. On Christmas Eve, we attended a service in our local church and afterwards there was a tea party in the church hall where our presents were distributed. I got a warm scarf and gloves which my mother had knitted for me. A postal order from father for one and sixpence, riches indeed, and a copy of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield from my sister. Brilliant stuff indeed. Do you know, I could read. I know I'm just... I'm, Try and do my best to give you a lovely picture of the beautiful lady. Um, and each individual one, you could, there's so many memories, stories, it's just absolutely brilliant. And each individual piece is, um, each, 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 um, in, individual piece could be a single episode. Um, Okay, let's do a couple more here. Because I've got one here. Might have been um, another memory. And we are told it all started when I was about five years old and my nose just reached the top of the counter in the meadow dairy. This was my favourite magical place. The gleaming white tiles of the walls interspersed with pictures of cows in the meadow, milkmaids and sunshine was my idea of performance. Action. One end of the counter held a large barrel-shaped block of butter, which a white-coated assistant chopped and patted to obtain necessary uh, to the to the obtain necessary amount for the customer. Uh, this was placed on a piece of greaseproof paper, which bore the picture of a cow in a meadow on it. Flick, flick, and the paper was deftly and neatly folded around the butter. They were large round cheeses with wire to cut and shape them. Brass scales clanged merrily as the little brass weights were added. I thought, that is what I'm going to do when I grow up, work in a meadow dairy. By the time I was 11, I had another passion, Coates and Sedgwick's. My mother was a frequent visitor to this large haberdashery emporium. <coughs> Large mahogany counters stretched into the distant rear regions of the store. The walls behind them were covered with intriguing little glass-fronted drawers, holding everything from ribbons and pins 
to ladies in gloves and exotic feathers to decorate a hat. Uh, sounds fantastic. Bales of various colourful materials were piled on the counter with lace insets for blouses, lace handkerchiefs in cellophane-covered boxes. Absolutely brilliant indeed. Um, and it goes on to say, um, it says, that is when I would be. That is what I would be when I would be when I was grown up, the cashier at Coates and Sedgwick. However, by the time I had left school, the store had closed and my sights had settled elsewhere. Having at that time no idea exactly what I wanted to do, I enrolled for a course at our secretarial college and eventually my first job as a secretary as a secretary hoved into view. It did indeed in the biography. Um Okay, what's this one? Born to dance. Goodness me. Born to dance. Born to sing. Um, Let's see what's happening here. For goodness sake, can you not walk like a lady? My poor, exasperated mother would say to me. But walking was no fun. And after a few sedate steps, I would be off skipping along and singing. I had always sung. I sang on my first concert when I was five, and then came school, and then, and then um, came school concerts, a school choir, and eventually a church choir. I never thought of it as being anything special. To me, it was just the same as breathing, running, or jumping at something you did. What well, didn't everybody? I got quite a shock when I found out everybody didn't. I was eighteen at the time and happened to be discovered. At that time, I represented the North East on the National Youth Council of the National Association of Girls Clubs and Mixed Clubs. Sounds quite a mouthful and very important. There were 24 young people on this council, and we attended conferences all over the country, and were the means of passing passing on news and ideas to local youth clubs. Headquarters was in London, just off Marylebone High Street, and we had the annual conference there. On the last night, we staged an impromptu concert, and as usual, I sang. Looking back now, I realise we were quite a talented bunch, but at the time, it was all good fun. Sounds excellent. Okay. Let's see. Okay, you're right. Um, together. Bill and I were married on February the 10th, 1951. And I was now under police protection. It was also the start of our residential tour of the Northern Counties. After the wedding, we started our new lives together in Manchester, where Bill was stationed with the police force. Our name was put on the list for a police house, but we eventually found we were 240 on the list and only 12 of these houses became vacant every year. After a year of living in shared houses, things had to change. Bill was not happy with the force. Having just spent five years in the Grenadier Guards, he was used to discipline, good organisation and efficiency. He could not find this in Manchester, in Manchester Force, so he decided to leave. By this time I was pregnant, 
So Bill applied for a transfer to Middlesbrough Police and we moved in with my parents until the baby was born. He left the force altogether, then took a position with a Newcastle-based company where he was employed, more or less, as a troubleshooter in the branches of the company in the north of England. Of course, this meant moving around. His first assignment was in Westmoreland. So he found a home near Kendall. This was a lovely detached bungalow, as the hills behind the town, in the hills behind the town, with amazing views. After the industrial climate of Teesside, Leslie Ann, our six-month-old baby, flourished in the clear, invigorating air, and was soon sitting up with a with a rosy red cheeks, inspecting her surroundings. After a year, we moved to Cumberland. This time we lived temporary in Gosforth, in a flat over a shop, whilst we looked for something more suitable. This is where I learnt how the other half lived. There was only one cold tap in the kitchen, and the wash house was across the yard at the rear. Wash day was a work of art. The wash house contained a huge copper boiler in brick surroundings, with a hole beneath for a fire. The night before the big event, I had to carry buckets of water down seven stone steps to fill the boiler. Then I had to lay a fire underneath. At 5am, I got up to light the fire to heat the water. Meanwhile, after breakfast and getting Bill on his way, I filled the tub with more water for rinsing off. Fantastic stories. Absolutely superb. Superb stories indeed. It's... um. I'm just looking here. I'm probably going to fit a few more in. Um, oh, I'll tell you what I found. Goodness me. Um, okay. Um, right. Yes. <coughs> I've just been flicking through here. <coughs> and I'll tell you what. I'm going to do. Just have two more here. May the 8th. This is May the 8th. Um, May the 8th, 2020. The 75th anniversary of VE Day, 1945. Okay. I had the pleasure of being in London on the first anniversary of VE Day. I was there at the AGM of the National Association of Girls Clubs and Mixed Clubs, representing Durham County. To celebrate this anniversary, a huge parade was organised. Representatives of all the different services who had taken part in the conflict were represented. Together with the royal family, members of the Commonwealth and every allied nation were included in this display of king and country working together in a common cause. One can imagine the excitement of the people who came from all over the country and abroad to witness the great occasion. Many had been sleeping on the streets so that, they, so that they could have a good view of the parade. Our headquarters were in Maribyrn, just a short walk from Oxford Street, and all six of us decided to go there, though we knew we would not be able to see very much. However, one of our, mem one of our number, Cyril, said he would go ahead and find us a good viewing point. 
When we reached Oxford Street, the pavements were all thickly packed with people, most of whom have spent the night there. How to find Cyril in that vast crowd was a problem. However, I suddenly spotted him. At the marble arch end of Oxford's Oxford Street, just yards away from where we were waiting, stood the Cumberland Hotel with a huge canopy shading the entrance. And there was Cyril perched on the top. We soon joined him by climbing up a drainpipe and protruding stonework. We had the best view in London, as from up there we could see the parade coming along Park Lane from the palace and turning down into Oxford Street. That was the most amazing sight. Each contingent had its own band, and the sound of all of them together, and the cheering was tremendous. In the evening, we went to Trafalgar Square, joining the dancing and singing until the early hours. What a day, and what a memorable occasion. Excellent stuff indeed, and I'm just going to flick through some of these. Um, <clears throat> Thoughts from lockdown, this was written on April. <coughs> I apologise, this was written in April 2020. Thoughts on lockdown. Now that I am really old and never a 60s girl, I look back on their jollifications, their lives, an eternal whirl. We had the joys of wartime, bombs and cues for food. And I and my friends were convent girls. We did not know how to be rude. This lockdown away from the virus is a greater threat than bombs. At least we knew where our enemy was and had shelter near our homes. It could be quite a lesson for all of us to be aware that where our others are all alone who need our help and care. There is no treaty available to end this virus war. We have to obey our leaders and stay behind our door. Just keep in touch with all your friends by email or by phone. This way we'll feel no longer that we are all alone. Hope is knowing that now is not permanent. Beautiful words. Um, beautiful words indeed. Okay, I'm just looking and I'm going to find, I think, just fair, I'm going to finish with another one here. Let's have a look. Christmas past. Um, let's have a look. I'm sure, I'm sure. Bear with me, people. Bear with me. What shall we finish on? We're not going to finish on that one called Disaster. Um, I'm sure I saw, I spied another, another poem in here. And I will, I will find it somewhere. Um, I'll tell you what we'll find. I'll tell you what we'll, uh, we'll end on. We shall end on. Yeah, so let's end on Desert Island Dream. Okay. Um, okay, Desert Island Dream. Let's end on a dream for this one. When, when the affairs of family, city, country or world go away, I have a dream of escaping to a desert island to live in a yurt. Problems can then be sorted out without involving me. 
which they will be given time. So what would I like, so what would I take with me? There are many books that are favourites. It would be impossible to choose. So from a practical point of view, I would take Ramey's book on survival in the wilderness. I would have to build my own yurt and it would be handy to have a few tips on the process. Also, I would know, also I would need to know what I can and cannot eat. Music is another vast list of choices, but being theatre and production trained, I would have to supply incidental music to match the occasions I am presented with. I detest storms, especially tornadoes and tropical storms, so some background music to set the scenes would help consider considerably. To end that, to that end, sorry, I have chosen <coughs> the ride. To end that, I have chosen the Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner. Not my favourite composer, but perfect in this instance. The crashing of the music would echo the drama of the thunderclaps and flashing of the lightning. I would end up being exhilarated instead of trembling with fear. After the storm, I would climb to the top of the highest point of the island and survey the surrounding panorama. Most appropriate for the exercise would be <coughs> the Sea Symphony by Vaughan Williams with its opening chorus of Behold the Sea, which is followed by the interpretations of moods of the sea in all its forms. Billows and rollers are reflections of the sun, sparkling on the still waters. <coughs> on the serene day, calm, on a serene day, calm, clear, blue skies above, I would lie on a grassy hillock and listen to The Lark Ascending, again by Vaughan Williams, who is one of my favourite composers, and contemplate the peace and glory of God. One luxury I would like to take is a solar-powered computer so that I could keep a diary of my exile. Also, I could play games of skill like backgammon and Sudoku to keep my brain finely tuned. If I were allowed another luxury, it would be a chest of vials, hopefully enclosing a book of instruction. This sort of cabinet would would have been a common item in a, is any wealthy home in medieval times as a means of entertainment for all the family. It would contain six vials, precursors of the violin of different sizes and tones. Learning to play each of them would keep me usefully and happily occupied until the day the steam of the rescue ship appeared over the horizon. By that time, I will be quite ready to return to civilization again. Hopefully, that all problems have been sorted. Excellent stuff indeed. Well, thank you, each and every one of you gorgeous people for listening. And I have, I hope I've done it a little bit of justice. I've just dipped in to such a fantastic collection of work Memoirs by Francis M. Demain. That is possibly the first of two 
um, podcasts um, regarding Francis because I've got two files and I just want to keep normally the, the podcast, you know, round about an hour and time is against us. So all I can say to all you lovely people is, once again, thank you for listening. If you like what you have been listening to, then tell all your friends and, you know, keep downloading, keep supporting. And if you want to be part of the show or you want to find out a, uh, you want to find out a little bit more about me, then go to my website, which is www.daviddriverauthor. You can be part of the show or send some work in or uh, just, just get in touch. You might want to tell me about something you are writing, something you're reading, your favourite book, your favourite author. You might be a poet or writer yourself, weaving your wonderful words of magic. And the good thing about the podcast is you can listen to it again, again and again. Brilliant stuff. I do hope that 2024 makes all your dreams come true. Keep laughing, keep writing and keep the love Thanks for listening, and once again, I will be speaking to you on the next episode. Goodbye for now, and take care.